me take a moment and welcome everybody that is joining us online, wherever you're joining us tonight, from your living room, your home office, or maybe you're actually at work and you haven't left yet and you're in your office at work. We're so glad that you chose to be here. I have a wonderful studio audience with me uh, tonight helping me so that I'm not speaking to an empty room. And so let me just tell the audience, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of this journey. Come on, give a hand to everyone joining us online. We are beginning this brand new series on the book of James, and I'm very excited about taking you in to the book of James for a number of reasons. You know, we're in this season of COVID where things are are really different for a lot of people. Uh, As a church, we're not able to operate the way we're used to operating. And one of the things we, we, we know, our responsibility as a church, my responsibility as a pastor, the Bible calls us shepherds. And what a shepherd does is he leads the sheep. And he leads the sheep to certain places. One of the places he leads sheep is to green grass. Green grass is to, it's food. It's nourishment for your strength, your energy, your soul. It leads you to still water where you can be rehydrated and, and refreshed. And that's what we want to do, and we can't do it the way we've typically done it in the past, and so we're creating different formats of worship. We had Tim and the team tonight uh, leading in a little bit of worship. We're also doing that in our online services in the weekend and on Spotify and different places where you can worship and be rehydrated and refreshed. That's, That's the still water, and then my job tonight is to bring you into some green grass, to allow you to eat, to nourish your soul, to feed on God's Word, and I'm excited to do that with this letter. Now, next week, we're going to jump into chapter 1 and begin to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of James during this eight-week journey. Tonight, I'm going to give you the introduction and the background, because when you get the introduction, when you understand the, the background, the context, who James is as a person, it makes the book come alive at an even greater degree than if you just read it and look at it for what it is. It's always really important to understand a little bit about the author as we read the different works of the New Testament. Now, as I'm teaching tonight, uh, some of you have your small group guide. There's fill in the blanks and and question area. I'm going to give you all the fill in the blanks tonight. If you don't have the, the small group guide, that's fine. Just take notes. If you have a question, go ahead and put it right into the chat line. And we have people monitoring the chat room and they'll send it up to us. So at the end of tonight, we can talk through some of the questions that uh, may be raised as I'm teaching tonight. Let's dive into it. James, out of the New Testament, uh, many historians, many scholars, many archaeologists believe that James is the first and the oldest letter manuscript document of the entire New Testament. We believe it was written around A.D. 45. So it was very, you know, about 12 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ, James would have been written. Now, the book of James is wisdom literature. For the New Testament, it corresponds to the Old Testament Proverbs. Now, here's what I want you to know about James. This is where we're going to start. If you have your notes, you're filling the blanks. Here it goes. James does not define the gospel as Paul does, but demonstrates how it works in practical life. Basically, the book of James is case law for how the gospel works. You take the principles of the gospel, the principles of grace, and you apply them 
to different situations and scenarios in life to see how it works in relationships and business and work and your prayer life. That's what James is all about. It's showing you how grace practically works out in your life. It's, it, it, it's practical application. It's wisdom literature. And so to understand it a little bit more, I want to take you first into the backstory of who James is. And we're going to look at just one verse in chapter 1 tonight. James chapter 1, verse 1. And there's a lot in this verse. I know if you read it, uh, a, a lot of times you'll look at it and say, well, I'm not really seeing a whole lot there. James actually says a lot in this very short, very simple, and, and seemingly very superficial verse that actually has a lot of depth to it. James 1, verse 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord. Notice that word, Lord, Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now, one of the reasons we're doing James as a church is that one word, scattered. James was written to a church that was scattered, a church that had been broken apart because of the Roman Empire, because of persecution, because of a variety of different things. They were scattered. Well, right now, because of COVID-19, much of our church is scattered. People with health issues or work issues or, or different things going on in their life that aren't comfortable coming back to physical services, that we have been scattered as a church. And not just our church, but churches across America have been scattered. James is written to a group of churches that were scattered very much like the season of time that we're in right now. Now, in the New Testament, there are many people named James. It was a very common, very popular name in the New Testament period. Uh, but there's one particular James that we know of in the New Testament who becomes one of the four main pillars of the New Testament church. So in the New Testament church, you have four key guys. You have St. John, St. Peter, you have the Apostle Paul, and you have this James. Now, let me help you understand a little background of who James is. James is not the brother of John. Now, John had a brother named James. He was one of the 12 disciples. That is not the James writing this manuscript, writing this letter. This, in your notes, is James, who was Jesus' little brother. This is James, the little brother of Jesus. Now, it's very important to understand that, that this was, and almost every scholar, every historian, every theologian accepts and agrees that this James, who wrote this letter, was the little brother of Jesus. He was the second son of Joseph and Mary. And let me give you a little background on Joseph, because a lot of people, they think that Jesus being from Nazareth was you know, it was like the boondocks. He was like a hick from the sticks and, and really didn't know what was going on all that much. And, and God blessed him with all this knowledge and this understanding. But really, he grew up uh, deprived and in poverty and uneducated in the backwoods of Nazareth. Well, there was nothing further from the truth. The Bible calls Joseph, the, the Greek word for Joseph was a tecton. Tecton, we translate it as carpenter, but it, if you really study the word tecton, carpenter is not the best translation. It's really a brick worker or a home builder. And if you study first century Israel or Palestine at this time, they didn't build homes out of wood. They built homes out of brick and stone. This was a bricklayer. Now, the tecton of a village would also have been the architect. He would have been very smart 
uneducated because you're building homes, and if you don't build them right, they collapse and people die, and you're, you're out of business. Like, if you have a home collapse, you don't stay in business very long. Joseph was a tecton. He was a builder. He was an architect. And if you study history, a lot of scribes and Pharisees and rabbis even in these small villages would have been the tecton, the archaeologist. He would have very likely been the smartest person and the most educated person in the village. And we see this in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up in the synagogue of Nazareth, and it says he opens the scroll and he begins to read out of Isaiah. Now, what does that tell us about Jesus. Well, some people say it tells us that Jesus, you know, understood scripture, he understood prophecy, he understood Isaiah. But at the basic level, what this tells us is that Jesus was literate. He knew how to read. Now, that's a big deal in the first century that you had the ability to read. Jesus had the ability to pick up a scroll and read. Where did Jesus learn how to read? Well, in this time period, they don't have schools the way we have schools. Where you learn to read is from the father in a Jewish home. So Joseph was a very significant character of the New Testament that we often overlook. We often don't understand because so much of his life is assumed because this was written to people who understood first century culture. So Joseph was educated. Joseph taught his children, James, Jesus, and even Jude. Jude, the author of the letter of Jude, was one of the other younger brothers of Jesus, taught them how to read, how to write, taught them scripture, taught them you know, how to worship God in the synagogue. They were a very religious family. We see that because every year they would go to Israel during the Passover. So this James grew up with a religious father, a Jewish father, a father that taught him how to read and write, and he grew up as a little brother of Jesus. Second thing I want to say about James is he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. James became the leader, the apostle, the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. Now, the reason we know that is because tradition tells us, uh, as the author of this letter, he doesn't have to clarify who he was. All he has to say is, I'm James. Why? Because he was the most important James of this time period. Any other James would have had to say, well, I'm James, the brother of John, or I'm James of this area or this city of this church. Anyone else would have had to clarify who they are with a title. But this James simply doesn't have to do anything to distinguish himself. He just says, I'm James, meaning that time period, there's only one guy who doesn't have to clarify who he is. And it was James, the brother of Jesus, who is the bishop of the church of Jerusalem. It could only be this person. What's also very interesting in, in verse 1, second, third thing in your notes there, is James saw Jesus, his brother, as Lord. Remember in verse 1, Lord Jesus Christ. He says the word Lord. That's a big, big statement for somebody who is Jewish. You see, the Greek word for Lord here is the word curious, curious. It's a Greek word that is, it means master, it means Lord. But to the Jewish people, this word in this time period meant so much more than simply Lord or master. It meant deity. It meant bigger than, than a human Lord, but this was a deity Lord. In fact, when you study the Greek Old Testament, we have an Old Testament that was translated in Greek. We call it the Greek Septuagint. 
In the Greek Septuagint, every time you see the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the Lord's personal name, it's always translated to the Greek word curious. It's why in our English Bible today, when you read the Old Testament, anytime you see the personal name of God in the Old Testament, it translates it as Lord or Lord God, because to the Jewish people, this word curious, Lord, means more than a man. It means deity. This, in fact, is why the Christians would not call Caesar of Rome what he wanted to be called. You see, the Caesar of Rome wanted to be called Kaiser Curious. Kaiser Curious. But they would not call him this because they would not acknowledge that a human being could be Lord. Now, why is this important that James, the brother of Jesus, is calling his brother Lord? Because if you understand Jewish culture of the first century, the Jewish people were the last people in the Mediterranean world who would ever believe that God would become flesh and blood man, that God would become human. You see, Eastern religions of the first century, they had no issue with believing God could become man. In the Eastern religions, they had what they called avatars, the, the Hindu religion, where, where it was easy to imagine that, that a God could inhabit a human being. In the Western religions of the Roman and Greek Empire, they had limited gods like Zeus, who were demigods or, or could become uh, half god, half man. So it's something they could comprehend. But for a Jewish person of this time period, they would not believe that God could become a man because they believed that God was infinitely exalted above all and created the universe out of nothing. The Jews understood God as utterly independent and above the world. So in their mind, a Jewish person of the first century would never imagine a human being being God. That's why James calling his brother Jesus curious is such a, a big statement to recognize his own brother, flesh and blood, as being more than a man. Every other view had God mixed up with mankind except for the Jewish view. In fact, the Jews won't even say the name of God, let alone believe him being a human. But this Jew, and here's what's so remarkable about it, James grew up with Jesus in the same home, slept in the same room, and yet he called his brother Curios, Lord. I mean, think about this for a moment. Have you ever read an expose biography on a celebrity who's passed away or, or, or died? Typically, it's written by a family member, like a, a brother, sister, son, daughter, ex-wife or wife. <clears throat> think about Elvis Presley for a moment. You know, the expose is written about his life. What do they tell us? They, they expose all of their flaws, all of their weaknesses, that, that yes, this person was larger than life, but yet they were very human and they had a tragic side to their life. Yet James, writing about his own brother, calls him Lord, more than a man. Now think about this. What would you have to do to convince your brother or sister that you grow up with that you are the Messiah? Like, how would you have to live your life in such a way that a person who has known you since birth recognizes you as more than a man? I, I personally believe this is one of the greatest proofs that Jesus was the Son of God, that his own brother believed in him. But here's the fact that I want you to see. <clears throat> Sorry about that. James did not always believe in Jesus. 
James was not always a follower of Christ. He was not always a Christian. He didn't always recognize his brother as Lord. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they made fun of him. They, they ridiculed him. They, they laughed at him. James, in fact, was bitterly opposed to Jesus and his claims of being the Messiah up until the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, it wasn't until after the resurrection of his brother Jesus that he was converted in a special and private interview with the risen Lord. You see, after the resurrection, there was there was Mary Magdalene with the other women at the tomb. There was Paul kind of getting knocked off the horse. But every other time after the resurrection, Jesus always appeared to groups of people for certain purposes. But we know of one time after the resurrection that Jesus appears to one man, gives him an audience of one, his own private meeting, and that was his brother James. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says he appeared to James individually then to all of the apostles. You see, he appeared to many groups, but there was a reason he decided to come to James one-on-one. Here's the next thing I want to say about James. James can be considered the true prodigal. Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is going to help you see this book in a whole new way. James is considered the true prodigal prodigal. If you know the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, James would not have been able to miss the fact that he was the prodigal. James knew the story. He knew the teaching of his brother Jesus, and it would not have escaped him that he would have been compared the younger brother in the story. You see, the younger brother in the story turned his back on the father, didn't obey the father, went his own way. James, when his brother was alive, turned his back on Father God and did not believe in his brother as the Messiah or obey God in following his brother as the Messiah. Jesus is the older brother who obeys the Father perfectly. You see, what Jesus does in Luke chapter 15 is he shows us a picture of an ugly older brother to contrast it with himself. You see, a good older brother in a Jewish family would have gone to the father in a situation like this and said, Dad, I'll go get my younger brother. And whatever I have to do, whatever it costs me, whatever I have to pay, I will bring my brother home. Well, the kid in Luke 15 didn't have a good older brother. But here's here's the amazing news for you and I. We have an incredible older brother. We have an older brother who went to the father and says, Dad, I'll go. I'll go to earth and I'll do whatever it takes. I'll pay whatever I have to pay, at any cost, I will bring my brothers and sisters home. And that's what Jesus did for you and I. He came and he paid the price to bring us home. And that's what Jesus does with James. You see, earlier in Luke 15, it says, I'll, go out, I'll leave the 99 to go after the one and bring him home. Jesus goes to his brother James at his expense, at his cost, because of his grace, because of what he did on the cross. And he brings James back. He says, James, I want you to be a part of this. I want you to follow me. I want you to be a leader in my church. And he brings his brother back at his expense. You see, when you know that you've been received, forgiven, brought back by the true older brother, it prepares you for anything 
in life. And there's a grace factor now in James's life because of being the younger brother brought back by the older brother. Look at Acts 15. You have the council of churches in Acts 15. And out of all of these incredible men of God, these, these heroes of our faith, St. Peter, St. John, Paul, out of all of the pillars, James is elected the chairman. And James didn't have three years of seminary following his brother around like, like John and Peter did. And yet out of all four of them, he's elected. How respected do you have to be to be elected the captain ahead of Paul, John, and Peter in the book of Acts? You see, there was a grace factor on James's life. And because of it, James eventually died a martyr for his brother. He was tortured and killed for his brother. Historians like Josephus tell us that in AD 62, they took James to the pinnacle of the temple where many people believe Satan brought Jesus for the temptation. And the, and, and the priest and the leaders of the religious law, they tell James, you're going to have to tell people to turn their back on Christ, to turn away from Jesus, to not believe in him as the Messiah, because James was the most respected man in Jerusalem at the time, and people are becoming followers of his brother, this, this Messiah, and so they're saying, you got, you're going to have to tell people to turn away. And this is what they say James shouted from the rooftop, from the top of the temple. He says, why do you ask me about Jesus, the Son of Man? He sits in heaven at the right hand of the great power, and he will soon come on the clouds of heaven. And James's proclamation enraged the Pharisees so much that they threw him off the pinnacle of the temple. Miraculously, he survived the fall. But what's more astonishing is historians tell us that after falling all this 40 feet plus, falling to the ground, that he rolled over on his knees and he began praying for the Pharisees. And they record his prayers, I beg of you, Lord God. Notice the word Lord again. Our Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. You see, they tell us that James had such a habit of prayer that he had knees like a camel. He had such calluses on his knees from being in prayer on such a regular basis. You see, you need to understand a little bit of who he is to really get the most out of this letter. So let's now, as, as we end Week one, let's look at the purpose of James. Because there's a lot of confusion in, in, with theologians and scholars today on the purpose of James. And even a lot of Christians, they read James, and at first glance, it feels like it's a total contradiction of grace. Like you, you have Paul in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So you have Paul saying we're saved by faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. But then James in chapter 2, verse 17 says, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And in verse 26, it says faith without works is dead. So is there a contradiction? Does this, does this just unravel our faith? Does it unravel Christianity? Because you have Paul saying we're saved by faith without works, and then James saying faith without works is dead. What's happening here? You see, James knew Paul's teaching, and James knew Paul's doctrine. If you read commentators, a lot of them say James was just being a little mischievous. Like James knew that you knew what Paul said. 
And so he was trying to say it in such a way that it would almost give you some shock value, like, like, like there was a shock factor to make you stop and pay attention, but he wasn't contradicting it at all. You see, the word justify can be used two different ways. Paul says we're justified by faith, not of works. But you can also use the word justify like this. If, if you come to me and, and give me a true statement, you tell me something that's true, I can look at you and I can say justify that statement. Now, when I say justify that statement, what you have to do now is prove that the statement is true. Now, you proving the statement is true is not making it true. You're just showing me that it's true. You see, James is not contradicting Paul. The early church fathers, when they put together the manuscripts for the New Testament, they never saw James as a contradiction to anything Paul wrote, anything Paul taught, or anything Paul said. It was complimentary. James, what James is saying is, is not that we're saved by works. James is saying works simply show our salvation. Works don't make us saved. Works show that we are saved. So how does this connect to grace-based living? We finished grace-based living earlier in the spring. How does this all connect? How, how, how does this work out in our life? How does this follow one another. Well, Paul says, take the gospel in. That's what Paul is saying. Take the gospel in. The gospel is grace. It's grace. It's Jesus. Take it in. James says, take the gospel out. Paul says, bring it in. James says, show it out. Show people that the gospel is now living inside of you. So in other words, the last thing in your notes there, Paul writes about the source of our faith. Here's the source. Here's the strength. Here's how it works. James writes about the fruit of our faith. When you're connected to the source, here's what it produces. When you're living a life of grace, here's what it looks like. Now, where you got to be careful with James is you cannot look at James as a bunch of rules of this is what you need to do to be a good Christian. Very dangerous to read James that way because James will never work with your willpower. James will never work with your self-discipline. James will never work by you trying really, really hard to, to follow all of these principles, these codes, these rules, these, these commands. It will not work that way. And you're going to see every week grace all through the book of James. You see, James is simply saying, listen, once you know who you are in Christ, this is what is produced in your heart and in your life. In chapter 1, we're going to look at this in a couple weeks from now. James talks about the Word of God being a mirror, that you look into the Word of God and you see your true reflection, and then you walk away and you forget what you look at. Well, let me just show you how this works. I grew up in a church culture that taught me the Word of God exposes you of all of your sin. It shows you everywhere you're messing up. It shows you what you're not doing right. And so we look into the Word of God as a mirror to see every area of our life that is falling short of how we're supposed to be living. That's not what James is saying. When you study James in context, what he's saying is when you look into God's word, it's a mirror of the truth of who you are. What does God's word say about you? It says you're forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. You're righteous because of what Jesus did 
on your behalf. It says God is not judging you according to your performance. God is judging you according to the performance of Jesus. And Jesus has been judged perfect, which means the judgment over your life is perfect. And when you look in God's word, you see the truth about who you are, that I am forgiven, I am righteous, I am accepted, I am worthy. And James is saying when you look and you see who you are, if you forget it, none of this is possible. If you forget who you are in Christ, you don't have the power to do any of this. The source is seeing who you are. But when you see clearly your reflection in the mirror, all of a sudden, you now have the power to live this way. And he's simply showing you what happens in a grace-based life in practical scenarios of your life. And so that's week one. Give you a little background little context. Next week, we're going to dig into the first section of chapter one, and it's going to be very, very good. You're going to enjoy this. But again, you've got to look at James through the lens of grace. You've got to see it through the filter of, of the younger brother. He's the prodigal. He was brought back by grace, and being brought by, by grace, he becomes one of the most respected men in Jewish tradition. Let me pray, and then I'm going to turn it over to our wonderful host, Greg, is going to lead us into a Q&A time. Father, I just thank you for everyone that's joining us. This season, for so many people, has been challenging, this COVID season. God, I've read so many emails. I've talked to so many people on the phone. I've talked to so many people in person over the last few months. And I've seen marriages that are falling apart, people that are hurting, people that are broken people that are confused, people that are in pain, emotional pain, because of this season that we're in that is so confusing. So God, as a church, we want to come alongside of people with your word and give them hope, give them truth to build their life upon a firm foundation. And God, I believe as they grab hold of the book of James, they're going to find a center in the storm. They're going to find a safe harbor. They're going to find truth to build their life upon that is going to empower them to live out the ideals of your gospel that we see throughout this this incredible letter that, Lord, your younger brother wrote. So God, I just pray through this journey, we would see it through the eyes of grace. We would see your hand in it, and we would receive everything you have for us. In your precious name, and we say, Lord, curious, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Greg, take us away. Amen, amen. Let's jump into some cues. Super powerful. Thank you so much. Um, The first question is uh, really asking you to kind of rehash um, how Paul's letters and James' letters don't actually have a uh, attention. It still seems to be... A bit challenging to kind of wrap yeah, our brains around it. But even if you read Paul's letters, Paul over and over and over talks about works. He says, run the race that you may win the prize. Mm. Paul talks about you know, people who are involved in sexual immorality and debauchery and all these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That we need to be people with love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. But again, what Paul is getting at over and over and over, and it's what James gets at over and over. We're going to see it next week. We're going to see it the week after. All throughout James's letter, what James does is he first shows you who you are, then he shows you what it produces, which if you study Paul's letter, that's what Paul does 
all the time. He's saying, this is who you are in Christ. When you embrace who you are, again, what do we talk about as a church? We talk about right believing produces right living. What you believe is what you will do. If you believe you're righteous, you will live righteously. If you believe you're a sinner, you will live like a sinner. That's what James is getting at over and over and over. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's what it produces. Here's who, see who you are. Connect to the grace. Connect to the finished work of Christ in your life. Let it produce these traits, these behaviors, these principles. Let it, let it manifest. And again, this is the difference between New Covenant and Old Covenant. Old Covenant, Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. It's all about you. It's what you have to do. How hard you work. How well you live. How well you obey. But Hebrews 8, the New Covenant. God says, I'm going to take my law and I'm going to write it on your heart so that it becomes your desire. It becomes your nature. It becomes who you are. And that's what James is getting at. James is saying, when you allow God to take his law and write it on your heart, it becomes your nature. Well, what does that look like? Well, James is the letter that shows us, here's what it's going to look like. When you allow the new covenant to be written on your heart, James is simply showing you case study after case study after case study of, of what it then looks like, what it produces, what happens in your life after the new covenant, the grace gets a hold of your heart. That's why Paul says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. Mm -hmm. Well, do not sin is works. It's something you're not supposed to do. But he doesn't say, do not sin, then you are righteous. He says, awake, realize, have a revelation that you are righteous. And again, righteousness is a gift. It's not what we do, it's who we are because of what Christ has done. Paul says, when you awake to righteousness, then you're going to live a life where you're not sinning. Why? Because it's not your desire anymore. See, the Christian life is not about controlling your appetites. The Christian life is about appetites being transformed. What James is doing is showing you what a life looks like after those appetites are transformed. Awesome. And so that's huge, right? And so to, so to piggyback one of that, um, you were just saying that the right belief translates into the right living. Yeah. And so what about the people that are struggling to believe, that really want to believe and really want to have the Lord's word and who, you know, the Lord says they are written onto their hearts, but they don't quite know how to do that? Are there practical ways that they can go about believing, having the right belief? Yeah, I wish there was practical ways to do it, <laughs> but then it gets into works and not grace. So here's the thing. The Bible is very clear that if you go to a good father and you ask him for good gifts, he will always give it to you. So what do we Praise need? God. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to take place in our life. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Conviction of righteousness. The word conviction means to convince, to convince. This is a supernatural process in our heart as believers. I can't force myself to believe I'm righteous. Mm. As a human, I naturally believe I'm unrighteous. I naturally believe I've got issues. I naturally believe I'm guilty, I'm condemned, I fall short. That's my natural mode of belief. Mm -hmm. I need a supernatural mode of belief. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. I don't need the Holy Spirit to believe that if I do bad things, I'm going to get bad things. I need the Holy Spirit to believe that I can receive good things I don't deserve gotcha. because somebody else received bad things they did not deserve. 
That's a supernatural impression of the Holy Spirit on our life. So what I can encourage you to do, if you're struggling with the belief system, ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of righteousness. Ask the Holy Spirit. Dwell on this. Meditate on this. Read about it. Study. Pray. Ask God. God, I need to believe I'm righteous and I'm struggling. In, in the, in the, one of the best ways you can do it, and again, there's a fine line of this becoming a work, is meditate on the cross. Look at Jesus. Keep your eyes, because as, as, as long as your eyes are on Jesus and not on yourself, as soon as you put your eyes on yourself, you're going to feel like you're not good enough. You're going to feel like you're a failure. You're going to feel like you're never going to achieve. You're going to feel like you're, just, you're so far away from what you need to be. That's because your eyes are on you. You need to get your eyes on Jesus and not on yourself. It, it, to me, my favorite story of the Old Testament that illustrates this is when you went to the priest of the tabernacle with your sin offering. You had, you had a sheep or a goat. And, and let's say you sinned during the year and you needed to be forgiven with God. And this was before Jesus. And so you bring a sheep or you bring a goat to the priest. And the priest would sacrifice that sheep or goat because blood had to be spilled for your sin. Mm. The amazing part of it is when you brought your sheep or goat to the priest, the priest would not examine you to see if you deserve to be forgiven. The priest examined your sheep or your goat. Is the goat without blemish? Is the goat without defect? If, if your sacrifice was accepted, you were automatically accepted. Had nothing to do with whether you deserved it. Had nothing to do with whether you were good enough. Had everything to do with your sacrifice. Well, here's the good news. Our sacrifice today is without blemish, without defect. Our sacrifice was Jesus Christ. Praise God. We're accepted not because we deserve it. We're accepted because he is our sacrifice. Praise God for that. All right. And so, uh, <laughs> so we have some questions coming in. And in this concept of uh, our sacrifice being perfect, and therefore, no matter what, we're righteous because of Jesus, is uh, breaking the computer, uh, so to speak. And so, <laughs> I heard somebody laugh over there. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, the question is, does that mean that there is no works, right? Or the fruit that there, that there never was any faith, right? What about a person who doesn't have time to show works? Are they still saved? Well, there was the guy on the cross. Uh, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to do anything, but his heart responded to Christ. Now, that's somebody who gave their life to Christ and immediately died. Mm -hmm. For most of us who are listening to this message, we didn't accept Christ and die, or we wouldn't be listening to this message. So here's the thing. Works do not make us a Christian. James is not saying that. Works show that we're a Christian. Gotcha. Works are simply a picture of what's going on in our heart. And so if you do not have works, the question is, has God's grace taken over your heart? And that's the hard question that only each person can ask of themselves because someone who is radically impacted by grace as the Bible says, God will when you say yes to Jesus, God takes his law, writes it on your heart, your heart begins to change. Mm. You cannot become a Christian and your heart not change. It is impossible to become a Christian and your heart not begin to change. 
There are a lot of people who say yes to religion, and that religion is Jesus. But they're not saying yes to Jesus as a person. They're saying yes to Jesus as a religion. That's different. It's not our place to, to go, like, look at people and say, you are, you aren't, you are, you are. And this also doesn't mean we're perfect. You see, being a sinner is not what you do. It's who you are. Hmm. Being righteous is not what you do. It's who you are. Let me put it like this. When did you become a sinner? Did you, did you become a sinner when you committed your first act of sin? Did you become a sinner when you told your first lie, when you rebelled against your parents the first time? Is that when you became a sinner, when you committed your first act of sin? No. You became a sinner because you were born. You were born a sinner because of Adam. So here, here's the question. Before you became a Christian, before you became righteous, when you were a sinner, did you have the ability to do righteous deeds? Yes. Yeah. Did those righteous deeds make you righteous? No. No. Okay, how do we become righteous? Not through deeds, but by birth. We're born again righteous. Now that we're righteous, do I have the ability to do sinful deeds? Absolutely. Do those sinful deeds make me a sinner? No. No. Just like righteous deeds didn't make me righteous, sinful deeds cannot make me a sinner. I still, as a righteous person, have the ability to commit a sinful act. And I do often. I'm not perfect. But those sinful acts do not make me a sinner. I am righteous forever because righteousness is not what I do. It's who I am. Now, here's the key to living the Christian life. The more I believe in my identity, look in the mirror, you walk away and you forget. What happens is I look in the mirror, the mirror says I'm righteous. I walk away, I forget I'm righteous, and I start thinking I'm a sinner. Why? Because I'm looking at my behavior. I'm not looking at my identity. I'm looking at my behavior. So what's the natural byproduct of forgetting what I look like? I sin. But if I remember who I am, and this is what James is teaching through the letter of James, when I remember who I am, here's the natural byproduct. I live a righteous life. Living the righteous life doesn't make me righteous. Knowing I'm righteous enables me to live a righteous life. That's the key. So good. So good. So encouraging. And so um, there's, now there's some interest in, in James and James himself in the background that you laid out about him. And so there's a question, where can we find this additional information about James's life after the resurrection? Well, we, we have a few verses of the New Testament. We've got 1 Corinthians 15, 7. It's in the small group guide. Uh, John, where it says James and his brothers rejected Jesus. And then 1 Corinthians, where it says Jesus appeared to James individually. Apart from that, if you read Josephus, uh, Tacitus, uh, I think... Uh, uh, I'm just blanking on the Egyptian scholar uh, from the first century, the, the, the Jewish historian. There are a number of people who wrote about the first century. Uh, Josephus primarily wrote about the martyrs. They let us know who died, how they died, who the leaders were. Josephus was not a believer. He was a Roman historian. He was a Jewish mm. man who became a Roman historian. And so in his writing, you can read a lot of this as well as some of the early church fathers. Okay. So a lot of it's archaeology and history, uh, old, old books written thousands of years ago. Gotcha. There you go, Gwen. Go to work. <laughs> <laughs> but we all have, as Mark Turnage, my rabbi, always says, Mark is our, our guide in Israel. He's the Indiana Jones of Christianity. He always says we all have Rabbi Google. 
Okay. So you can always go to Rabbi Google. Uh, so what, what is I wouldn't believe word? everything Rabbi Google says, but you'll have it. <laughs> All right. And so there's, a, there's another question about, about James and education, right? So um, there's a question here. I've heard that there were two main levels of education. The first was generally Torah-based, and the second being more advanced. And so what level of education did James have, and what about Jesus? You know, that, that's a theory that I've heard a number of times from the people I've studied under. You basically have people who are more devout and people who just were not as educated or devout. It wasn't necessarily, it, it was really the poor had a certain level of education like we have in the world today, and then the wealthier had another level of education. It wasn't necessarily two religious sects. It was more financially based. James, his father, was Joseph. Joseph was wealthy. Uh, we know he was wealthy because they were able to travel to Jerusalem every single year for the Passover. That wasn't free. Uh, that wasn't cheap. Not, not every family from Galilee traveled to Jerusalem every year. When you study first century history, mm -hmm. uh, you had to be incredibly devout and you had, to be, you had to have means to be able to do that. And so we know that Joseph was incredibly devout. Very likely, Joseph was the rabbi of Nazareth. Uh, because he was the tecton, he was the, the builder, the archi architect of the city. So very likely he was the rabbi also of the village. Many first century villages, the, the architect and builder of the city was also the rabbi of the synagogue. And we also know that Joseph uh, was very educated and literate because Jesus was educated and literate. And so that's, that's really interesting, right? Because you're right, we, we've believed for so long that Jesus basically grew up poor, how did, how did that happen? How did, how did that belief form, and how did that become so widespread? You know, I mean, he said things in his ministry like, you know, the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. And he made statements like that. He said, blessed are the poor. And so people take it and run with it, you know? I mean, a lot of times it comes from people who are living in poverty wanting to justify, justify their poverty mm -hmm. as being spiritual or pious, and it's just a way to make themselves feel better. There's nothing wrong with being poor. There's nothing wrong with being rich. The only thing that matters is that we have a relationship with God. What we should never do is justify our wealth as godliness mm -hmm. or justify our poverty as godliness. So good. So good. That wraps it up. Hmm? Okay. And so... Time. No, we're, we, we have another question. Do we have another question? Yeah, we do. Okay. All right. Uh, and this would be the last question. Uh, in what ways can we bring the gospel out at Coastline? You know, it, it's really, it, it goes back to grace. The more we allow God to write the new covenant on our heart, the more we understand grace, the more we walk in our righteousness, uh, the more we understand who we are in Christ, our identity, the gospel is the natural byproduct of our life. Mm. It, it's, it, it, it changes our appetites. It changes our desires. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we view people. You know, when you, have a, when, when you have a gospel filter, you don't look down on people, but you also don't look down on yourself. It's gospel self-esteem. Right. A lot of people struggle with high self-esteem, low self-esteem. Let me show you how grace works. When I understand grace and the gospel, what is the gospel? I am far more wicked and evil than I ever imagined. And at the same time, I'm far more loved and accepted than I ever hoped for or dreamed of. Far more wicked and evil, so I'm not going to look down on other people because I know who I am. But I'm far more loved than accepted, so I'm not going to look down on myself and feel inferior to others because I know who I am. 
The grace produces gospel self-esteem. It's not high self-esteem. It's not low self-esteem. It's gospel self-esteem. That's just one area of the gospel living out of our life. Love it. Love it. And so uh, that's our last question. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for, uh, for, this, for, for beginning this series. Thank you so much for tonight. Uh, it's definitely encouraging, I'm sure, for all of us to know that no matter what, Jesus got us. No matter what, Jesus has saved us. And so, therefore, what we see in James is not a contradiction no. to, what, to what Paul is saying. It's not a contradiction. We're not going to lose our salvation, so to speak. It's the proof of our salvation. It's the justification yeah. and the truth yeah. of our salvation. So. That is all right. <laughs> well, thank you all uh, to our live audience. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for making it so that pastor got to be personable to a bunch of people instead of being personable to the camera, which he's very good at doing. Yeah. And uh, thank you to our audience on the platform. Just so you know, we will be doing this every Wednesday at 7.30 for the next eight weeks. Again, if you want to register, if you want to be a part of our live audience, then go to coastlinechurch.org, go to events, and that's where you'll be able to register. And again, I'm, I'm been asked to say this, spectacular giveaways. They are here. Come. We're trying to bribe you to come with the spectacular giveaways. Get here. These right. things are awesome. <laughs> I actually tried to have a little bit of the chocolate and I got smacked. So, so there's that. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this, uh, this night with our, with our lead pastor Aaron and the teaching of James. Again, if you need to join a James small group, uh, those groups are still open. Thank you so much. We love you and we'll see you next week. Have a great night. Thank <laughs> you.